probably between 350 and 400 will go to Artificial Life 11, and the remainder will be um, spread out through the uh, broader biota community and drop locations at universities, at institutions. I know, I think you'll pick up 50, Bruce, aren't you, for your general travels? I think so. And uh, Tom, tell us, uh, tell the audience uh, what is on those CDs. Well. I, I would like to say that I've taken the uh, the cream of the crop of the previous podcasts. However, that probably will offend podcasts that have been missed. I've taken, I think, probably a pretty fair selection of what we've discussed on Biota Live to date, plus the previous Biota podcast. Not any of the Biota 2 audio, actually. Just the stuff that's been recorded since I started doing this more than two years ago as a means of informing the, the broader community, in particular the academic community, that BiotaLive is there. Uh, we've had a number of interesting topics, and I think that there's certainly a, a good deal of contributions that can be made from the broader artificial life academic community into the discussion. So the aim of the CDs is to put, um, I think it was about 16 hours worth of audio in MP3 form in front of at least 350 participants in Artificial Life 11 and their related students and other folk, obviously the the folks attending Artificial Life 11 will get a CD, but there's also the option for them to get more CDs if they have students and things like that. Giving the uh, Biota podcast a physical form in some regards so people can uh, look at and listen to the CDs and then ideally pass them on as well. There's a section of the CD that says once you've finished subscribing or you know, if you want additional CDs, get in contact, but please feel free to pass this CD on to other people as well. So hopefully... We will see subscribers for uh, for many, many months to come from this initial bow to CD drop. Um, an interesting phenomena. It's going to be interesting. The stuff we did with Grace and Boston, we did a test drop, I think, of uh, 20 CDs at Grace and Boston. They were um, consumed very rapidly, and we had at least 20 new subscribers based on that drop alone, just working on the IP addresses. So I think we've already proven that if you give someone who's artificial life interested or artificial life curious at Biota CD, they will subscribe to the podcast, which is very good. Now, Graytham news. We've got both Bruce and Gerald's Graytham news. Gerald, is it was your first Graytham, and I suspect you've probably got more people than you're initially expecting. Please tell us more about the first Graytham meeting in the Netherlands. We got uh, about 15 people, uh, and, uh, and we gathered in this really uh, this really nice uh, uh, room with, uh, with two uh, rows of of sort of uh, like stadium chairs uh, that they were actually uh, cinema chairs and uh, and we talked in in that environment so it was really sort of a circular thing when I think about the the gathering I always think how how it could be done better next time so I've got lots of ideas how to improve for next time but it was a it was a nice group of people just getting to know each other for the first time I think most of them were just curious I didn't uh, really encounter another uh, practitioner that that makes it a little difficult to uh, you know have uh, interesting conversations they're just curious they're coming in they're trying to figure out what this is and uh, I gave them a, an introduction to it and uh, observed some interesting conversations had you met Rudolph before I had never met him before. No, he he, he appeared and uh, and stood up and give a give everybody a talk after after me. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's the first time. Yeah, he's not a practitioner, but he's certainly an instigator. And I think what we're finding is probably that there are, there are just as many official uh, life commissars going out and spreading the message than there are actual uh, practitioners currently. Obviously, we'd we'd prefer for there to be 
more artificial like practitioners, but the commissars have their role as well. You need users. You need people to uh, take a look at it and have an appreciation for it. From last week also, they, they present the philosophy of artificial life in a slightly different context than, than we may as practitioners. And speaking of these things, Bruce, you met at the Internet Archive. How did it all go? Oh, it was tremendous. We had a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting location because it's the archive of the internet in the Presidio, yeah, Brewster Kale's organization, and we had really great presentations. Uh, John Cumbers presented his whole vision about uh, astrobiology and synthetic biology and how you should be able to evolve from synthetic biology, which is real wet chemistry, DNA, RNA biology, and create create creatures that are appropriate, say, to live uh, in an asteroid or in Mars. And with the Phoenix landers, discovery of the soils this week on Mars and on the pole are quite appropriate. They're not acidic. Uh, they're quite basic. Uh, the, the Martian soil at the poles, at least, is pretty appropriate for living things. So that was incredibly exciting to hear about that. And then Jeffrey Ventrella uh, showed us an evolving genetic algorithm music system plus another system and we had a another person who had just come in i can't call her name but she showed a really tremendous environment that shows how the cells have sort of stickiness and grow together and it was sort of a cell cell based uh, simulation and there's a number of pictures that have hopefully been posted of that and alan lundell recorded everything and he will be putting up uh, the high def video sometime soon of that entire meeting. Yeah, I think her name was Sharon Minsook. Yeah. Yeah. And what struck me about the meeting, and I've propagated the photos through Facebook, as I've been asked to do as well, is just the number of new faces, but also the number of familiar faces, too. I think this is very powerful to, to folks like Gerald, who are either anticipating or have just had their first Graytham meeting. We got to talk a little bit about Brighton in a minute as well. People bring new people. There's a kind of cumulative effect. And certainly looking through the crowd, I couldn't put names to faces, but the faces looked familiar in terms of previous attendance plus some new faces as well. And I think the, the critical mass is a, a very interesting thing to track. A lot of the stuff Jeffrey demonstrated was stuff that I'd already seen of his. I'm a consummate fan of Jeffrey's work, so the music stuff in particular I'd, I'd played with probably around the time of his first interview two years ago. Did he talk a little bit about um, bringing gene pool out open source? Was that discussed at all? He was asked that, that question, I think, about all of his systems, and he said he, he planned to do it, uh, but it, it wasn't ready to do it yet. He's actually making new versions of gene pool now and fixing bugs, so maybe that uh, when he's done that, maybe he'll do that, do that to open sourcing. Well, news from Grayson Brighton. I got an email this week from Jason Evans, and he demonstrated a wide variety of artificial life projects at a youth group. And this is interesting feedback, actually, from a practitioner. The um, video footage of the first official Grayson meeting in Silicon Valley has netted probably about five months' worth of changes for Noble Ape. Your demonstration of Noble Ape, Bruce highlighted so many subtle flaws in the interface <laughs> that I've gone back and taken quite consummate notes and I'm in the process actually of doing implementations with regards to various components, including live help, which I think probably would have aided your demonstration a, a great deal. 
So for practitioners, these Grey Thumb meetings are an amazing ability to get uh, second-hand feedback. And I remember when we had Chris Hecker on, he said the demonstration of artificial life projects will yield the greatest feedback in terms of development, and I think that's certainly true. Anyway, Jason demonstrated a wide variety of projects and got amazing feedback from the, the children that he demonstrated the projects to, and I asked him if he would record an audio submission with regards to you know what he saw in these kind of things, a kind of project log in audio form. I'm going to put that out to the uh, broader Biota listening audience as well. If you have something exciting associated with artificial life that you've participated in or software you've used or if you want to give a project report or anything like that, feel free to either give it to me in writing and I'll certainly discuss them in the internet radio show or even better, record yourself and email me the audio. I'm more than happy to put audio in either in the Biota feed or at the conclusion of these programs or during the programs to talk about. So for folks interested in calling in, the contact number is 646-200-0640. We have the pleasure of having Stefan Bornhofen on the phone from Paris. We also have a live chat for people interested in participating who don't want to call the US number. You can get to it from the Blog Talk Radio page which you probably have open if you're listening live. So, Stefan, I, I have a number of questions with regards to your project, Darwin Park, but I okay. guess the, the, the first is, what is the motivation for modeling plants? Yeah, well, that's a good question, uh, because if you look at the literature, I think there are some very different motivations that can be identified. So, on the one hand, above all, I think there is the biological motivation of uh, understanding the life of natural plants. So understanding their development, their interactions, their role in natural ecosystems, and all this by means of simulation. And because a better understanding of, of plant communities is, uh, is important for many domains, see, like uh, ecology, or forestry, agriculture, and so on. So the biologists develop simulation tools to describe and to predict the growth of natural plant species. So this is, I can say, the biological perspective. But in the context of artificial life, there are some other motivations that can be identified. In my opinion, besides the biological aspects, there is the idea of, of creating real-world-inspired virtual universes and that can be explored by users via, via avatars. So this context raises the problem of how to convincingly represent plant life in virtual worlds. And this is, this is a more fundamental question about why uh, are we creating virtual worlds? So I think um, there's, on the one hand, there's the idea of creating virtual worlds that from an entertainment point of view, and on the other hand, there is the scientific point of view. And uh, these two points, they are merged, fused in the existence of virtual worlds. And I think another important motivation in the context of artificial life is that plant development can be used as a, as a context for studies in artificial evolution. For example, if you want to, to study some specific dynamics in genetic programming, you can use uh, virtual plants as the phenotype space because plant growth is pretty visual and intelligible and this helps understand what's happening in your evolutionary system. So I think these are the major motivations of plant modeling. So specifically, how do you actually model the plants? You can say a, a plant can be modeled in, well, in many ways. Generally speaking, they can be modeled at community level and at individual level. 
So at community level, there are, for example, aggregate mathematical equations, okay, that describe a number of individuals of one or several uh, competing populations. Or another population level approach, but uh, using individual-based modeling, is a representation of plants as uh, two-dimensional circles on a plane. So on these circles uh, indicate the range of, of influence. And when these circles increase, this means that uh, the plant grows. And uh, when two circles intersect, there is a competition between the two corresponding plants. So these are approaches of plant modeling at a population level. So now if we zoom in, we can look at modeling of individual plants. In this context, there is a classic distinction between morphological and physiological models. Morphological models describe the, the structural development means the, the 3D architecture of the plant. The most common approach is called the L-system formalism. So this is based on symbol strings. So a plant morphology is described by bracketed expression. It means a, a concatenation of, of symbols containing um, terminal and non-terminal characters. And there is a set of rules, a set of production rules, which specifies how to replace the non-terminal characters by new symbols. Repeated application of these rules leads to more and more complex bracketed strings and such strings can be in interpreted geometrically as a branching structure. So this is classic approach of a morphological model. So these morphological models, they do not feature any uh, resource dynamics assimilation allocation. So there's another component of a virtual plant, which is a physiological one. And traditionally, there are pure physiological models that divide a plant into a fixed number of compartments, like, for example, a root compartment, stem compartment, leaf compartment. And then these models describe the resource dynamics, the resource flow and allocation, most often in terms of differential equations. So if you put together these two uh, approaches, since a couple of years, they are merged into one. These are the so-called uh, functional structural models, so functional for the function, which means the physiology, structural, for the architecture that features so a morphological and a physiological component. So these models are currently the most complex approaches to virtual plants. And in terms of plant simulation, how is this in an artificial life context? In an artificial life context, well, I think in an artificial life plant models, like any artificial life models, they are typically based on, on the concept of uh, simplification bottom-up modeling and emergence. I think that biological plant models, they try to model specific natural species. So artificialized plants, they deal with plant-like structures in virtual environments that exhibit dynamics more or less close to natural plants. Do you see the difference? Certainly. Well, we do not seek to, to create accurate models of real-world plants, but we create plant-like structures that we compare to real-world plants. Yes, that's a good explanation. Now, in terms of moving artificial life, what do you see as being the, the distinctions between moving artificial life and plant artificial life? Most importantly, it's that plants are organisms without any central control unit. So there's no need to address the problem of, of complex perception and reasoning. Right? So plants don't move. They, they don't think. This shifts the focus to one of the most basic activities of an organism that is morphogenesis. We could say that plants can, can simply be modeled as a emerging self-assembling structures composed of atomic elements. We call them uh, modules. So modules are uh, leaf, flower, fruit, and so on. So this situation is quite, uh, 
like perfect for artificial life models. And what's the state of the art in terms of contemporary artificial life plant simulation? Well, state of the art. Now, there's some good literature on um, on evolving plants in the context of uh, genetic programming. I don't know if you know the, the works published by Christian Jacob and Mark Toussaint. They take the phenotype, phenotype space of uh, uh, virtual plants and study the dynamics of their evolutionary algorithms. And then there are many projects featuring plants for, for virtual online worlds, like, uh, like Bruce Damon's Nurse Garden. I hope he, he can tell us more about this. But specifically about your project, Darwin Park, can you describe what it is? Uh, well, uh, Darwin's Park is, um, is basically a simulation platform intended for, uh, for the study of the dynamics that emerge in a simplified virtual ecosystem. So a system where uh, different ecological agents interact and uh, co-evolve. Uh, Darwin's Park is a continuous three-dimensional environment featuring resources that can be taken up and processed by, by the agents. And uh, the most important agent type in Darwin's Park is currently the virtual plant. Now, I have a question for Bruce here, actually, because I've, I've been reading his original Nerve Garden paper. You've been following Darwin's Park, obviously, through its progression. Can you discuss a little bit about how it's based in Nerve Garden and how it's moved to where it is currently, Bruce? Well, uh, Nerve Garden, just to, for the audience, uh, a little bit of background, in 1995 in SIGGRAPH, uh, there was a University of Southern California project called, I think it was called the Telegarden. Uh, yes, it was the Telegarden. And basically it was, and this was, I think, also shown in Ars Electronica in Austria in Linz. And it was a robot that you could program, uh, run over the web and move and put a plant in the ground or put a seed, it would put a seed into the ground into a physical plant box, and you could then, uh, and you saw a webcam view of it, and you could also have it water the plant or several plants, and you created a, it was quite a phenomenon, and you could create and grow plants over many weeks uh, over, uh, using the, te the telegarden. And we were inspired by the fact that when, when well, Biota was founded in 1996, and the first project we did was called Nerve Garden which was inspired by the telegarden. And it basically said, let's do the telegarden in a virtual world. In order to do that, we, we, we selected L systems, uh, Lindenmeyer systems, from the wonderful book, The Algorithmic Beauty of Plants. And I had met Prussian Kevitz, or Dr. P, as, as, as he's called. at the uh, He was part of our, our Digital Burgess, the first biota conference. And he was one of our speakers. And so for SIGGRAPH 97, their, special, their electronic uh, sort of experiments area was called the Electric Garden. So we were perfectly suited to get a proposal approved, and we built this L-System Cedar uh, environment where the public could come in, pick an L-System, and then put it into a Java-based 3D in environment early one uh, built by Chris Laurel and extrude a plant to a certain point. And then they would pick the plant and they would put it onto a common island in a large VRML scene driven by an SGI Onyx 2 that was also projected on a big screen. So as the public came in, they were planting their plants and it, the island would email them its location so they could go back and find it when they got home. So the idea was 
that they would come and see the collective creation uh, of, of these L system forests, if you will, on these islands. And the goal that we always had, uh, you know, of course, none of these, these are just basically model extrusions. They're, they're not, there's no dynamic feedback in the environment. There are little insects flying around and cameras and things like that. But the goal for Nerve Garden 2 was always, the second edition would have been uh, to have the plants affected by the, the sunlight hitting them and the minerals in the soil or moisture in the soil and insects operating as what we call polyvores or that, that eat polygons, which is sort of a funny play on, on herbivore. And then you'd get kind of a, a, a reaction to having leaves chopped off and stems removed. It would be kind of like topiary. And Nerve Garden 2 would be a more of a living, evolving thing. And it just was beyond the capabilities of the technology of the day of the, of the late 90s to do that. And when uh, I had met Claude Latode uh, at the Virtual Worlds conference in, uh, I think it was in 1999 or 98, in Paris, and uh, hosted by J.C. Houdin. And uh, just, he's just doing really tremendous work. And when they started on Darwin's Park, which I think had another name originally, I realized that they were going to really take uh, Nerve Garden to the next step, and they have. And you, you can go in, if you're running Darwin's Park, you can actually start multiple types of L-system plants in different locations. The plants shade each other. They respond to, so the, they're responding to the sunlight they're receiving and nutrients in the soil. The, so the root systems will follow the pathways of these, of, of the nutrients. And it's really... It could really be used for plant productivity models for, for crop research, agricultural research, and, and just to create really cool uh, virtual worlds and to also participate in, in the polyvore-type experiment with uh, creatures, noble apes, appearing suddenly in Darwin's Park and eating some of the plants. Um, as, as apes do eat a lot of plants. They do. Uh, that's the connector, I think, uh, hopefully for the audience uh, here. And yes, there's actually a section in the original manuals of Noble Ape that deals with Noble Apes that become, uh, I guess I want to say shamans, but more like kind of medicine apes that go and find various berries and test them out on the rest of the tribe and things like that. So the, there's a long narrative with regards to all possible uses of plants, including building structures and these kind of things. But Stefan, Bruce has given a, a wonderful overview, but can you give a, a brief explanation of your model in Darwin's Park? Well, first... Uh, there is the environment. Well, the plants grow in a three-dimensional environment that has uh, two components. Uh, we call them the soil and the sky. Okay, uh, both of them they have an, an environmental resource. The sky provides light, which can be captured by the leaves, and the soil contains minerals that can be assimilated by, by the roots. Now, I think it would be too complex to reiterate the light or to simulate the grains of sand in the soil. On, on the other hand, it is very important to to create a certain environmental heterogeneity. Otherwise, um, the interactions between the plants and between plants and the environment would be very limited. So we decided to use an intermediate approach by dividing the environment into a number of cubes. I call them the voxels. And each voxel contains a certain amount of resources, which means that the sky voxels, they hold a local luminosity and the soil voxels contain a local mineral concentration. There are different resource dynamics between these voxels. So in the sky there is uh, shading, 
So the virtual light has a certain direction and every uh, above ground object casts uh, shadows. So which means that it decreases the luminosity and the voxels following the direction of the light. And concerning the soil, there are also uh, dynamics. There is a diffusion between the voxels, so the, the nutrients move from, from regions of high concentration to regions of low concentration. So this is uh, the environment. Now we put the, the virtual plants into this environment, and these plants, they start with, uh, as a seed, okay, and then they are, when they, when they um, germinate, they are described by two L systems, the above ground L system and the below ground L system, two parts, call them the shoot and the root part. So each part is responsible for the assimilation of one resource. So the shoot captures the virtual light with the leaves and photosynthesizes sugars, and the root assimilates the minerals in the soil. And then there is a, a resource flow, flow. So this is the physiological part of the, of the plant model. So there's a resource flow between the two compartments, a mineral flow from the root up to the shoot, and a sugar flow from the shoot down to the root. And now to grow, each compartment converts one sugar unit plus one mineral unit into one biomass unit. These dynamics are, are well known in the scientific community of biologists. It's called the transport resistance model. So when a compartment, compartment has accumulated a certain amount of, of biomass, so uh, the next morphological developmental rule, the next the L system rule is applied and the plant grows. Now you've talked about growth, but you haven't talked about uh, reproduction or seed carrying. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, do the plants have flowers? Do they produce seeds? Yes, definitely. Uh, they, they have flowers, they produce flowers, and then there is a probability of pollination. And if the flowers are pollinated, they produce a seed. So now the precise reproduction depends on the experimental setup. So we have uh, two approaches of plant evolution. The first one is explicit selection. This means we use a genetic algorithm with a given fitness functions. So just like, uh, for example, Carson's block creatures, we measure a certain fitness. Of course, uh, we don't measure locomotion of the plants, but uh, there are other interesting criteria to define. For example, um, the number of flowers, or the number of seeds, or uh, the growth rate of the plants. And then we take uh, the best individuals of the current uh, generation and reproduce them. Artificially, we, we cross over the, their genotypes. We introduce mutations via genetic operators that act on the plant genotypes. And then finally, we analyze the resulting plants after about 1,000 generations. Okay, so this is the first approach. And the second approach is implicit selection, which means that the plants freely reproduce within the virtual environment. So they grow, they, they produce flowers, they produce uh, seeds, the seeds are dispersed around the plant, and so on. And uh, the only fitness criterion is uh, survival and reproductive success. So this corresponds to Darwin's struggle for existence. Now, in terms of the kinds of plants you simulate, what kinds of plants do you simulate? We have a, an artificial life model, so this means that we did not seek to model specific natural species, but we have a generic plant model representing the most familiar group of plants. You could say it's the, the green land plant, like uh, trees, flowers, ferns, and so on. I think the scientific term of these plants is embryophytes. 
You've given two descriptions with regards to your use of genetic algorithms. Do you, for example, in the one where you do the, the thousand cycles versus, for example, the more natural simulation, do you phylum group the plants after a period of time? We did not try and, and classify the emerging plants into species, but we observed that the evolved morphologies, for example, have similarities to existing real-world plants. So we observed classic trees and bushes, fern-like star-shaped architectures, or long structures without branching like, uh, like ivy. So you can uh, draw comparisons between uh, our plants and the natural plants. Can I ask a question here? I'm wondering, Stefan, uh, um, what's the uh, programming environment in which you're doing these experiments? It sounds fascinating. Oh, uh, it's uh, entirely written in C++. We wrote it from scratch. We use uh, a graphical output which is based on the uh, Augur graphics library. Okay. And I okay. want to point out uh, something here. Uh, digital space, uh, in all of our NASA work, uh, we also use Ogre as a component. And one of the things I'd like to offer, um, and I've offered it to Claude, and he's quite interested, is when you're done in your next round of, of changes uh, and upgrades, uh, you might consider uh, somehow using digital space's framework for the, another round of Darwin's Park, because you will get uh, the Python language, ODE physics, uh, a huge framework, multi-user, et cetera, et cetera, just by attaching uh, Darwin's Park into our Ogre framework. And it might be easy, it might be hard, but it's, it's all Ogre, it's all uh, the same platform. Uh, and, and I extend the invitation uh, to do that if you like. Yeah, sounds fascinating, really great. It also gives the opportunity to grow plants in space, which I think has been a, a theme on the previous Biota podcasts as well. So, uh, Stefan, I'm interested in modeling fungus with regards to Nobelape. Do you also model fungus? Um, yeah, we had a, a previous version of Darwin's Park where uh, fungi were uh, modeled. So we plan to, to add them to the new version as soon as possible because uh, fungi are uh, interesting organisms. You don't have to think that they are, they are plants. Fungi cannot uh, photosynthesize. They have to feed on, on other organisms. So some fungi hold a symbiotic relationship to plants. So this relationship is called uh, mycorrhiza. So the, the fungi get the sugar from the plant and in return they, they share their mineral nutrients with the plant. So this is interesting because the modeling of fungi would allow observing a new type of uh, coevolution, which is based on a positive relationship in contrast to um, the coevolution we observe uh, in Diamond Spark right now within plant communities typically based on competition. Fascinating. And I, I guess there's a potential for insect life and if you look at the consumption of plants by small animals, rodents, these kind of things, these dramatically affect the way the plants grow. Do you foresee a situation where you also start including insects and small rodents and things like that into, into Darwin's Park? Of course. We hope that eventually we get real virtual ecosystem with uh, different ecological actors interacting with, with uh, one another. So for now we have uh, the plants, then we get the fungi, so another type of non-moving agents, then the insects. But I think we have to be um, careful with what we add to such models 
because every new dynamics we add uh, is a new complexification, and this might hamper the extraction of uh, what we want to observe. I have a slightly different view, because my observation, particularly with regards to additions of animal species in a simulation environment, is that it in fact creates a, a greater degree of stability in the long term. What you start observing is things in terms of emergence. If you're looking to create a simulation that has emergent properties that you never initially thought about seeing, adding these kind of, as you say, complexification elements can oftentimes promote the kind of emergence that you ideally would like to to see in an artificialized simulation. In terms of the future, what do you see Darwin's Park being used for in the future? And in terms of a broader artificial life plant simulation perspective, what would you like to see in the future with artificial life plant simulations? Well, our, our results, they suggest that uh, a lot of dynamics observed in Asia, they readily emerge in, in virtual plant communities. So I think there are two major perspectives. One perspective is I hope that there will be a growing exchange between A-life plant modeling and biological plant modeling, that these two approaches eventually merge. And on the other hand, I hope that current virtual worlds, they start to integrate growing structures, because if you take current virtual worlds like, uh, like Second Life, for example, so the, the plants are nothing more than, than a static item. So it would be an interesting next step to integrate A-life plant model into this kind of online virtual world. So more, more generally, I think that A-life plant simulation is, is a, an important first step towards the modeling of, of entire virtual ecosystems. But, but this requires, of course, uh, more computational power. Do you think what you are doing currently with Darwin's Park can give answers with regards to how to actually utilize the computational power in the future? Are the things that you're finding through developing Darwin's Park that you think will be useful when you deal with, you know, multi-core processes or uh, cluster networks or these kind of things? We definitely do not focus on uh, technical aspects like how to increase the performance. So our research with Darwin's Park addresses questions like which morphological and physiological traits evolve in a virtual environment? How do the plants adapt to varying variations of the environmental conditions, like a lack of resources? And can these adaptations be compared to observations on natural plants? And to what degree do these results corroborate biological theories? We focus on, on the biological aspect and we hope that we are able to integrate it in, in other existing virtual worlds. Personally, when I look at artificial life simulation, I think of the computational power almost being like physics in the real world. That if you choose to ignore physics in the real world, you can do quite a bit. But if you start to embrace physics in the real world, you start getting motors and combustion mm -hmm. engines and a wide variety of other things. Do you think there will be a shift in the future in Darwin's Park into actually looking at these questions of visualization and computation. If we integrate other agent types, specifically uh, in particular the uh, mobile agents, we have to integrate much more dynamics, physical dynamics. But for plants, this is not really dispensable because plants, they grow to resources, but since they do not move, they, they have very limited collisions and interactions. And uh, so we could spare all these aspects for now. I agree that if we add other agents, there will be a, a tremendous amount of work which has to be done uh, considering all these uh, physical aspects.
In terms of the area that you are currently simulating, this is another question with regards to computation. You're obviously simulating in a fixed or relatively fixed area in terms of the voxel volumes. Do you foresee Darwin's Park expanding into much larger areas as computation gets to a a scale where this can be done? It would involve uh, a network of computers like a grid networking because the one uh, local machine is able to simulate, let's say, uh, 1,000 plants, but above that it's uh, difficult for one machine. So if you really have uh, want to have uh, an ecosystem, an entire forest of plants, of trees with um, zillions of, of leaves, it is very important to find solutions to, uh, to get Darwin's Park into a network. So these really are the challenges for the future. Yes, because the experiments we do for now, the results can be achieved with uh, 1,000 plants. Okay, there's no difference between 1,000 and uh, 1 million plants. Uh, qualitatively, it will be the same. But uh, if we talk about plants in virtual world with users exploring the world, this is another pair of shoes. Gerald, with nine minutes remaining. I know you've been waiting patiently. Do you have any questions for Stefan? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 would, I would like to uh, be able to play with this, this kind of thing. So I would like to see it in, in an open source format. I do have one uh, very specific question. Greatham Netherlands is planning to have a second get-together in September in uh, The Hague. And I was wondering if I could get Stefan to come up north and, uh, and give us a talk. Oh, sounds interesting. Uh, I will write it down. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. It's not, it's not exactly, uh, we haven't picked out the date yet, but it'll probably be in, uh, in the beginning of September somewhere. And certainly Bruce has done demonstrations. Uh, he did at the first formal grey thumb of Darwin's Park. So I believe that you can actually get the application. How did you, how did you get Darwin's Park, Bruce? Claude uh, sent me a link. Uh, I guess it's not, for, it's not really a published link, but maybe, uh, maybe uh, we can get some screenshots perhaps up on the podcast page so people can uh, see what it'll be like uh, when it's uh, released, if that's all right. Yes, I found a deep FTP link, which doesn't provide it in a single downloadable, but provides it in components, which I think is the, the current active distribution that's done internally in, in Paris. What you've described, Stefan, has excited probably uh, at least Gerald and, and myself in terms of open source development. I think what you've described, particularly with regards to the problems in the future in terms of the processing and these kind of things, are certainly things that Gerald and I have looked at independently and a number of the other listeners to buy it alive. So it'll be interesting when the source code is released, the kind of feedback that the broader artificial life community can give with regards to optimization. I know, Bruce, when you demonstrated Darwin's Park, you mentioned that the frame rate can slow down quite dramatically as the as the plants become more complex. Yeah, it's, that's, um, that was actually a problem for us in Nerve Garden at SIGGRAPH in 97. We kind of gradually choked an Onyx 2 uh, graphics supercomputer uh, as we added more and more L-system plants. It uh, became apparent that there had to be some kind of culling algorithm going on. There's a, there's a good solution to that, I think, uh, which would be, you know, level of detail calculations. You can, in a lot of games, it's the case, you know, when you approach something, it gets more detailed. So you can do that sort of tricks, I think. Yes, that's right. Uh, it's uh, quite obvious that uh, if you, only one large tree is sufficient to, uh, to slow the, down the, the computer, and uh, there uh, needs uh, solutions to be found how to overcome these kind of, of problems, right? For example, the level of detail like you said, or 
perhaps one could merge the atomic items, the atomic leaves, into one mesh, though it could be processed by the computer more rapidly. I think there, there are solutions, but uh, as I said, uh, for now, all these kind of technical issues they were just uh, secondary, because uh, we really tried to, to progress in um, biological research. Do you have a, a date set when Darwin's Park will be released open source? My deadline is uh, is my PhD for now. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, this summer I, I want to finish my PhD to write everything down, and then I think uh, I try to continue to develop Darwin's Park in terms of, of technical details and to open it to uh, increase, for example, to um, improve the interface. Because in my opinion, a user who uh, has no knowledge about the interior process of Darwin's Park has quite uh, difficulties. To, to use it. So there is a lot of work to be done to make the interface more intuitive. And what's, uh, what's exciting about this is that uh, you, you've already done the work uh, with respect to how the system works and sort of the scientific analysis of, of how, how all the interactions happen. So, you know, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of good work that someone would be able to inherit if they were to uh, take on the, the, the task of building an interface. Okay, I see. Right. Yes, I think that's the, the general consensus, and certainly this is the feedback that we've given to, to Jeffrey Ventrella as well, that releasing things open source, there, there are two schools of thought, and one says, well, it needs to be perfect before we release it open source, and the other says, in order to get it perfect, we need to release it open source, and unfortunately, the, in order to get it perfect, we need to release it open source seems to be the certainly the way Gerald and I came to releasing our projects open source. So we do evangelize from that standpoint. So with four minutes remaining, Stefan, do you, do you have anything more that you would like to, to add? Uh, yes, I would like to, to know what the others think about the question, why we create virtual worlds? Because this is something really... Uh, fascinating myself, and I would like uh, to, to know what the others think about the motivations of creating virtual worlds. You've got to hand this to Bruce. Yeah, well, I'd like to start by saying, because this is such an important question, we're going to go overtime on it. Mm. So, so we, we have three minutes remaining, but let's throw that aside. Let's just talk about this, because I, I think it's a fascinating question that motivates some discussion. Bruce, why do we make virtual worlds? I think it's sort of a, a primordial fascination humans have with creating little universes, uh, playing God, playing games, being sociable in a little universe where story animals, uh, we like to watch people, uh, soap operas and people play with other people, we like to do gardens, we like to manipulate the world, we're primates, we're binocular, we're, we're, we're depth perceivers, and this medium is irresistible to us. And I think it fascinates different different primates different ways. I mean, what we have here is is four engineers talking about engineering these environments and as as engineers we can gather together and think about these environments in terms of you know abstract software engineering problems but as Bruce has touched on there are a number of levels to virtual worlds Gerald what's your own thinking with regards to virtual worlds same as Bruce more or less I mean it's uh, it, it becomes exciting when you can actually meet people inside them and, and hang out with them so you know the the social and the you know the fact that it removes all geography or you know you know distance becomes unimportant you can actually uh, you know, hang out on a, on a hammock with somebody on a, on a hilltop, and uh, meanwhile this person is somewhere else on the, world, on the planet. Uh, can I reformulate the question then? Certainly. Uh, why do we uh, create 
special creatures in the world? Well, my feeling is that, as, as I described with some kind of high level, there are different kinds of people that have different kinds of interests. I think universally amongst the artificial life folk that I've talked with, there seems to be a, a primal fascination with regards to things which aren't properly being explained by contemporary science in some regard, or perhaps not correctly communicated, as Gerald may want to rephrase me as saying. And I think the interesting thing with regards to creating creatures and ecosystems and these kind of things is that we can start putting our own knowledge and our own theories to the test in some regard. It is a reinforcing experiment. And certainly in my own thinking with regards to developing Noble Ape, you develop an amazing kinship, and this came through in recent correspondence with Gerald too, you develop an amazing kinship not only with regards to the environments that you create, but also with regards to other people who have created their own particular environments. And I think this is the, the, the beautiful idea with the Evo grid is, in fact, you get the high-level simulators communicating and then you get their simulations communicating. And I don't know in terms of whether it is something which is, you know, fundamentally uh, psychological, whether it fits in with Bruce's narrative in terms of storytelling and imaginary worlds or these kind of things. But I think there's a... There's a strange transition which, Stefan, you, you mentioned with regards to the idea of taking real-world plants and then making virtual plants that are, in some regard, not directly connected, but take the same kind of basic ideas. Stefan, you've been, uh, you've been making creatures for your own reasons, which were, I believe, until this point, largely scientific. Somebody else might uh, make them you know, from a very different perspective, like Jeffrey Contrella. Is, uh, you know, his background is, uh, is art school. He's an artist. So, uh, and, and in a way, uh, the things I do, I consider to be you know, art as well, to some degree. It's just uh, you know, it's, it's another medium like a like a paintbrush in a way so have we started to answer your question stefan or do you need to rephrase it again it's great thank you very much <laughs> okay <laughs> well we went slightly overtime on this as an example of questions that will force us to go overtime but next week somewhat topically uh, we are going to be talking about others artificial life projects and their immediate needs for assistance bruce as we've gone overtime would you like to do a little a little wrap about what you're going to be doing in the next three, four weeks? Yeah, it's actually quite exciting and relevant to both Grey Thumb and Biota. I'm gonna be traveling a week from tomorrow to a week from today actually to London, where I'm starting I think I'm starting a PhD program, like Stefan, at a university there. It's a directed research uh, mid career PhD program, it's international. And the very topic of my proposed topic is the Evo Grid. That will be what I'm discussing with the program director on Tuesday, Wednesday, and we have an all-week seminar where the other PhD students are also there. And on uh, Friday, uh, Friday the 11th of July, is the Graysum London meeting at British Computer Society right in central London on Southampton Street. And uh, I'm going to be basically presenting the Evil Grid vision, and Justin Lyon will also be there talking. And it should be quite a quite a week, actually. Um, I'm going to try to contact other people of interested in artificial life in London while I'm there, and that'll be a sort of a week of gray thumb and biota and and my beginnings of my PhD work. Terrific. And do you think the Brighton folk will come up to that gray thumb London, or do you have plans to go down to Brighton? I probably don't have time to get down to Brighton, so I do hope 
some of them, if they are in the city or if, if they can come up, it would be absolutely splendid. Uh, as I'll be back in the UK two, three times a year uh, to work on the doctoral uh, program, uh, I'm going to most certainly make it down to Brighton uh, for one of their meetings as well. And I'm hoping to go up to uh, Oxford to go back and see Richard Dawkins. Certainly, and, and maybe even go to the Netherlands to complete your uh, full tour of all grey thumbs worldwide so far. I'd love to go back and see Gerald, and especially if there's some kind of World Cup final going on in Rotterdam. <laughs> and Gerald, in terms of the energy, I guess, that uh, the first grey thumb meeting gave you, did it give you any food for thought with regards to your development of Darwin at home currently? It was certainly an opportunity to uh, to tell my uh, most recent story and to and to try and make the case. And it was a lot more difficult than I thought, actually. It seemed more abstract when I was describing it to other people. I guess I've been into it too deeply myself uh, up till now. But uh, it was interesting to be able to present it and get some feedback on it. And, and I think there are a number of people really, uh, really dug it. So we'll see what happens. In terms of the 15 that attended, were you able to get a sense of how they found out about it and what their broader artificial life interests are. A lot of the people were, were people who actually just know me and know my project, so they just uh, decided to uh, sniff it out. And uh, there were a few others that were invited. It was publicly uh, you know, uh, on, the, on the site of, of Worms, so uh, people just found it as well. Yeah, I heard this week about the Buckminster Fuller Institute here in the U.S. and the fact that they give an annual prize that is relatively substantial. In terms of your works links to, to Buckminster Fuller. Have you ever considered approaching the Institute? I used to have some contact with the Institute a number of years ago. I had no idea they had a prize like this. Yeah, no, it's quite yeah. substantial. It's, it's, um, I believe it was about $100,000 this year, but I could be completely wrong. That could be the, the total prize, but it was enough that made me take note. I'm not sure whether they're U.S. or North American specific. It went to a fellow who's doing regenerative growth in the Appalachians with regards to quarries. But I think certainly as you have a, a long history with regards to um, Buckminster Fuller's work and how it's impacted you similar to, to Dawkins' work, it was an interesting angle that uh, immediately resonated with me. Sounds interesting. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, on the on the Buckminster Fuller tour with this uh, Tensegrity thing because uh, it puts me on the outside of the the architecture community as well. You know, on the on the fringes, just like uh, Fuller was. It actually forced me to read about Tensegrities too. By the way, at at the Greytham Netherlands meeting, there was one fellow who uh, actually took exception to the fact that I was evolving architecture. He, 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 didn't, he didn't trust the blind architect. Yes, I think it's interesting your analysis with regards to firstly giving a de demonstration talk to a group of architects who are probably not even artificial life curious, but when you're surrounded by maybe even artificial life critical folk who are also thoroughly interested in artificial life, the whole dynamic changes. And I think that's certainly something that I've taken away from, particularly looking at the Boston talks. I can imagine after people conclude their talks at Boston because they, I guess they've had two years worth of folk coming through the, the conversations following and perhaps Bruce can talk on this are, are probably considerably more critical and dissective than we're normally used to even doing things like Biota Live. Was this your experience Bruce? The meetings when there's time for people to, to, to really talk, the questions are incredibly penetrating and informed very intelligent people come to these meetings. The topic next Friday, 4th of July, 8 p.m. Pacific, is Help Wanted. If you have an artificial life project you would like me to talk about with regards to uh, needing additional assistance, any kind of assistance. In fact, I can't 
really imagine someone who had an artificial life project who wouldn't want to at least have their project aired in this kind of forum with regards to potentials for the future, please get in contact, tom at noble8.com, if you'd like to record some audio for me. I will certainly put it in the feed. Similarly, if you'd like to participate, the time again, 8 p.m. Pacific on Friday, the 4th of July, we also have an active chat window for folks in Australia or other parts of the world in Asia or uh, parts of Europe that can just make the call. I know it's it's 5 a.m. for you, Gerald, isn't it? It'll be for Stefan as well, I assume. That's correct. Strictly for the hardcore if you want to actually wake up and participate. But does this excite you enough to call in next week, Gerald? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank Stefan in particular for uh, for coming on uh, Biota Live today. And please, you're more than welcome to come on in the future. And similarly, anyone who's involved with Darwin's Park, it would be lovely to have uh, Claude on the podcast or, or anyone else who'd like to participate in these discussions, Stefan. Thank you very much. It was a really interesting talk. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank Gerald and, and Bruce. We won't be hearing from Bruce for... Uh, what, three, four weeks, you think, Bruce? Yeah, I'll be on hiatus. So we, we look forward to uh, to hearing your adventures when you get back and uh, look forward to talking to you next week, Gerald. Okay. Thank you all very much. Thank you.